Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Crosspoint Church again. Welcome to the Christmas season. Uh, this is one of my favorite seasons of the year. I'm not much for winter, but... And we, we have a little ways to go before, uh, before Christmas, and I cherish this time of year. Um, my name is not Brad Evangelista. It is Joseph Davis. I um, am a member here at Crosspoint with my wife, Emily. Um, I'm also serving as a pastoral intern, and it's my privilege to be here with you this morning to open God's Word. Um, So turn with me, if you will. Uh, Our text this morning is going to be in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. If you're new to Crosspoint, if you don't have a Bible with you, check the seat in front of you, and you'll be able to find a Bible there. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. So I'm going to start off by reading our text. It's again Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. And it may be called in your Bible, Jesus heals a centurion's servant. Verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with with them. When When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. When Jesus begins his ministry in Palestine during this time in world's history, the Jewish people had been living under Roman rule for several years. And they were tired of it. They felt oppressed. It had been nation after nation that had ruled over them. And they were hoping that finally God would act and restore them. And there is a sense of tension and a sense of hope and deliverance would maybe be coming soon. The Old Testament prophets had frequently looked forward and spoke of a Messiah who would come rescue his people. And many of the Jews during this time thought that this Messiah would be a powerful political conqueror who would come and overthrow the Romans. 
And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it is to this huge sense of expectation that this Messiah may be coming soon. But there's a problem. Jesus isn't quite meeting the full expectation of what people thought the Messiah would be like. He isn't seeming to embrace the identity of a conquering hero or a military warrior. In fact, before this passage, we see Jesus teaching at the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's teaching is for God's people to love their enemies. Wait a second, Jesus. Not, that's not the message we want. We're ruled over by these oppressive Romans. We don't want you to tell us to love them. We want you to be the hero that conquers them. And Jesus does talk about bringing God's kingdom, but it doesn't seem to be in a way people want either. He's talking about God coming first to conquer people's hearts and their sins, and God's kingdom bringing repentance first. And, you know, what's more, he's not, Jesus isn't really ranting about the oppression of the Romans. He's actually spending more time calling out the Jewish religious rulers of his day who are steeped in legalism and hypocrisy. So the message isn't quite lining up with what people thought the Messiah would sound like. And the second problem is Jesus isn't exactly attracting the right kinds of people. You know, if you're going to be a political revolutionary, you want to attract people who can help your cause, people with money, people with political connections, and you need people who are kind of thirsty for blood, ready to raise the sword. But what kinds of people are Jesus attracting? He's attracting uneducated fishermen. How's this going to help? Plus, one of his disciples was a tax collector, basically a sellout to the Romans who collected taxes for their behalf against the people of Israel. These aren't the kind of people you want to recruit if you're ready to overthrow the Roman government. And second, the types of people that Jesus is doing ministry with and to are all the wrong people too. You'd think he'd be attracted to the religious elite of his day, and yet who is Jesus going to? Well, there's a Samaritan woman who had been married five times. This is maybe the last person you would expect to be the perfect disciple, the most attractive disciple for the cause. And yet, it's the type of people who are on the fringes of society that Jesus eagerly seats out. And we see this again and again. People who have been rejected by the religious elite of their day people who are on the fringes of society, Gentiles, people who are sinners, people who can't hide it. They're the type of people that Jesus is continuing to pursue. And that is where we are when the story opens. The story, as the story opens, Jesus is with his disciples and he's entering the seaside city of Capernaum. And he is approached by the Jewish elders of that city because they have something they want to ask Jesus. But it's not for themselves. They are asking a favor on behalf of the Roman centurion of Capernaum, the one that has the political power in the town. 
This favor is the centurion's valued servant is sick, and these Jewish elders want Jesus to come and heal the servant for the centurion. Now, centurions were powerful warriors in the Roman army. The very name centurion, century, means a hundred. It means they were over at least 100 soldiers. And so this poses many problems for many of the people in Jesus' company. First off, a Roman centurion is the symbol of Jewish oppression. This is the enemy. You know, many of the Jews, like we said, thought the Messiah was supposed to come conquer the Romans, not to help them. And second, even if this wasn't a centurion, let's just say it was just a normal non-Jewish Gentile, you know, Jews aren't even supposed to enter the house of Gentiles because they felt that it would make them unclean. So the idea of Jesus going to the centurion's house to heal someone was kind of unthinkable in Jewish culture. Why would Jesus waste his time with a non-Jew and why would Jesus waste his time healing the servant of one of the Rome's oppressors, just a symbol of oppression? So this is kind of a major problem for many of the people there. And so, seemingly, this centurion and his Jewish friends kind of realize that this is a super awkward request, right? And so they come up with a plan on how they're going to ask Jesus to do this on their behalf. They realize it's awkward. And so, seemingly... First, the centurion isn't going to come himself, but he's going to send a Jewish delegation kind of to vouch for him. And this makes sense, right? You know, if you're a Roman, it may look really bad to come to Jesus and ask for a favor. But if you send other Jews, they can kind of vouch for you that you're a good guy. And we see this in verse 4. So this Jewish delegation shows up. And they come to Jesus and they're pleading with him earnestly saying, this centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. Why? Because he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. In essence, they're saying, Jesus, I know it looks bad. I know this is a centurion coming with this request but he's a good guy. He's a really good guy. This isn't your run-of-the-mill centurion. He loves the Jewish people. He's been good to us. He even built us our synagogue. And so, and here's the key word, he is worthy for you to do this for him. He's worthy. And so Jesus, being full of mercy and grace, graciously agrees to go with the, the Jews to the centurion's house. Again, it's kind of scandalous because Jews aren't even supposed to go into the houses of Gentiles, and yet Jesus is graciously deciding to go. And this is where our story takes an unexpected turn. While Jesus is on his way to the centurion's house, what happens? It says in verse 6, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, 
The centurion sent friends. This is the second group. Saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what is different about this second group that comes to Jesus, and why would the soldiers send a second group? Well, if we look into it, the second group's a lot different than the Jewish elders that came to Jesus. First, the second group isn't Jews that are vouching for the centurion's character. It says they're friends of the centurions. And that makes us think that these are probably other Gentiles. It's no longer the centurion sending Jews to vouch for his character, but he's sending them his own friends. Second, the second group doesn't just plead earnestly with Jesus, they address him as Lord. There's a, there's a deeper reverence for who Jesus is with the second group. Number three, they say the exact opposite of what the first group said. The first group said, he is worthy to have you do this for him. But what's this, the message of the second group? It's the exact opposite. The centurion sends word that he's not worthy for Jesus to do this for him. He's not worthy. It's the exact opposite of the first message. In fact, he says, you don't even need to come under my roof. But just say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. So we think about this for a second. We think about these two messages and these two messengers that the centurion has sent. The first is all about the worthiness of the centurion. The first is all about what makes him worthy to be an object of Jesus' healing ministry. And the second message is the exact opposite, is that the centurion is not worthy, and it has far more to do with who Jesus is than who he is. And I think when we look at these two messages and messengers side by side, we see two different approaches for how we can approach Jesus. And in our society and in our own lives, I think we are hardwired by sin to like and enjoy and feel comfortable with the first approach to Jesus. We want to come to Jesus because we feel worthy. And we want Jesus to accept us. We want a relationship with God. We want to pray to Jesus because it's somehow owed to us, that we are somehow worthy of it. And this psychology, this idea kind of permeates everyday life for most of us, right? This is what we're used to. In our society, if you want something or if you want someone to do something for you, you need to become worthy of it. If you want obedient children who love God, you become worthy of it by being the perfect parent, the perfect father, the perfect mother. If you want a promotion at your job, how do you become worthy of it? You work really hard. If you want something in this life, what we are hardwired to think is that if you work hard enough, you'll get it 
based on the effort you're putting in. If you want the right friends, you flatter the right people, you work your way into the right circles, and eventually, guess what? It'll be paid off for you. There'll be a payoff. Reciprocity is deeply ingrained in us and in our everyday lives. And we see it everywhere, including social media. Who here has a LinkedIn account? What's the point of LinkedIn? Well, it's to show the whole world that I am a worthy candidate for any job that's out there. I can put, and I do, I can put my resume on there. I can show you my education. And if you're a potential employer, I can make a case for why I'm the ideal hire for you. And what's better, there is a nice space toward the end where I can get other people to write about how great I am. In essence, I can get people to vouch for me. Hey, you don't just have to hear about it from me. Look at all my friends and what they have to say about me. You know you're going to get a good hire in me because of what they say, not just about what I say. And I'm not against social media. I'm not against LinkedIn. I'm not against working hard to get a promotion. In fact, I think our society is so ingrained in this idea that we're pretty suspicious of anything that comes across as free, right? If you get a phone call in the middle of the day and it's someone you've never heard of before and they say, congratulations, you have won a free house in the Bahamas. What's your immediate reaction? Yes! What am I going to do with this house? Should I sell it and make money? Should I keep it there and just visit it every summer? This is going to change my life. No, that's not your reaction. Your reaction is, this is a scam and what do you want from me? I think that's most of our reactions. There is nothing free in this world. There is no free lunch. If something good happens to you, it's because you're worthy and you've earned it, right? And this isn't always a bad way for our world to operate. People who work hard should be getting promotions. The problem is we take this mindset and we apply it to our relationship with God. And we think that Jesus works the way the rest of the world works. That if we are worthy of him, then we have to earn it on our own. And that's how we're hardwired by sin to think. But the problem is the gospel doesn't operate that way. And so what do you do in your own life to feel like you can be made worthy for a relationship with Jesus or to keep a good relationship with Jesus? There is a whole list of things we do that all have to do with who we are and why we are worthy that keep us in this mentality. We are self-justifiers. We want to be worthy on our own accord. This means that it may be that you have taught Sunday school for a long time and slowly but surely you think that you're worthy of a relationship with God because you're a faithful Sunday school teacher. Or maybe you're a really good parent or a spouse and you think because I'm a faithful and obedient parent or spouse, surely the people that Jesus accepts are people like me. I'm faithful. I am worthy. I've worked hard. I'm a moral person. 
and I'm a good employee. Or maybe you think you're worthy, not because of exactly who you are, but because of who you're not. Well, I've never fallen to that sexual sin before. I'm not like those people over there. You know, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like them. At least I'm not that kind of parent to my kid. And and we begin to believe that we are made worthy by something in us to come to God for a relationship or come to Jesus as a relationship. And even those of us who believe that we are saved by grace alone, even as Christians fall into this mentality, we start to think, you know what? I have served a long time and I, and I do try hard as a spouse and as a parent. And you know what? Maybe it's my righteous actions that's holding up this whole thing, this whole relationship with God hinges on what I'm doing day to day to earn it. Why do we think this way? What about us is so comfortable with earning salvation, with earning a relationship with Jesus? I think there could be a lot of answers to this question, but I think one of them is that ultimately, deep down, we feel like that if we can earn part of our relationship with Jesus, if we can self-justify it, if it has to do with how good we are, then we can manipulate and control God in our relationship with him. I don't think we realize it, but deep down we think that as long as Jesus accepts us based on our goodness, our righteousness, then maybe God kind of owes us at the end of the day. Maybe we can put our thumb on God and get him to do the things we want him to do for us at the end of the day. Because we know if our relationship with Jesus is based on pure grace, then we're out of control. Then the whole thing is him holding the whole thing up. And so it's much more comfortable for us to have a worldly mindset that says we are worthy or we can become worthy if we work hard enough. And the problem is that that is not the gospel. The problem is that is not the gospel. The gospel is that the only people who can come to God for a relationship, the only people that are acceptable by Jesus are people who come empty-handed. Because even our good works are filthy rags. Even our best efforts are tainted by sin. Even the best things we do have impure motivations. Who of us does anything out of pure motivations for God or other people? None of us do. None of us are like Jesus who is perfectly obedient to the Father and who perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. At the end of the day, everything we bring to the table is tainted one way or another by the sin of selfishness or pride or something else. The gospel is that none of us come to God worthy. I love the hymn Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, where I die. The famous American theologian Jonathan Edwards 
said that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And the great irony of life and of our relationship with God is that if we think we can earn it on our own, nothing is ever enough. It's never enough. You'll never be the parent you need to be. You'll never be the employee you need to be. You'll never be the Christian you need to be if that's what you're looking for to justify yourself before God. It'll never be enough. True joy and true contentment and real salvation only comes to people who come empty-handed to Jesus. So point one, the only way to come to Jesus is empty-handed. Point two, Jesus is the one who has authority, and he is the one who's worthy. So let's read verses 7 through 10 again. Starting in verse 6, actually. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. If we can't look at ourselves in our own worthiness for salvation, for a relationship with God, where can we look for hope? We can look to Jesus. That's the point of the passage. We don't look at ourselves at all. We look to Jesus. And the irony of the passage is the centurion seems to be the only one in this crowd who understands that Jesus is the Messiah and has the power to say the word to heal a servant. He is, in essence, saying, I know what it's like to have authority because I'm a centurion. How much more authority then do you have since you're from God? Jesus is surrounded by these Jewish religious leaders who miss the fact that he's the Messiah. And the irony is, it's this Roman centurion who sees that Jesus is from God and has authority and can do all things. That he's Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Isn't it interesting how sometimes the people we think that are furthest from God are the people who can most clearly see who Jesus really is. And so why does Jesus have authority? Two reasons. First, Jesus has authority because he's the author of creation. And second, Jesus has authority because he's the source of our salvation. First, Jesus has divine authority over this world because he is God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, created through him and for him. 
We remember Jesus out in the storm-tossed boat in the middle of the storm, and his disciples are scared to death because the boat may flip over, and they come to Jesus, and he speaks softly a word to calm the seas and the storm, and voila, they're calm. The waves and the water remembered the voice of their creator. And in the Gospels, when people are worshiping Jesus and someone tells them to stop, Jesus himself says that if they didn't worship me, the very rocks from the ground would cry out. Jesus is the creator, and so inherently he is the one that's worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship, and he has authority over this world. But second, Jesus not only has authority because he is God and he is creator, but Jesus has authority because he is the source of our salvation and the only source of our salvation. He has authority because he's the creator, but also because he is the spiritual recreator of the heart. And that is the gospel. The gospel is not that we can work hard, that we can earn salvation. It's that the God of the universe, the God that created all things, came to earth. He lived the perfect life we could never live, and he died the death that we deserve. So that all who put their hope and faith in Jesus and look to him as the source of our salvation, all people who do that are welcomed into God's family forgiven and loved and brothers and sisters and children of God. The gospel is that God came near to us. That's the magic of Christmas in the incarnation, that God drew near to us, that we were confused and blinded by our own sin, unable to get out of it, and the God of the universe, the creator, came down, took our place, took our sins so that all who look to him by faith are forgiven and made children of God. That's the gospel. We come empty-handed because we know the hope is not in ourselves or our own moral record, but it's in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. He's our plea. He's our reason for hope. He's the reason for Christmas. He's the reason we can get up in the morning. Not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy and he died on our behalf. And even the faith we have to believe in Jesus is mysteriously through the grace of God to begin with. It's all about who Jesus is, not about who we are. And to top it all off, Jesus conquered sin and death and hell and Satan by rising again on the third day. Jesus has authority over us because he's creator, but also he has authority as the conqueror of our hearts. And if Jesus has authority, if he is the one who saves us, then what is there left to fear if we're not saving ourselves and it's Jesus 100% that is saving us? That opens new possibilities for freedom and joy for all of us. Because it's not us saving ourselves, it's Jesus saving us. It's his blood poured out for us. Our confidence is in him and his sustaining grace, not in ourselves. 
What does Romans 8 say? Paul is just reflecting on the majesty of this truth. And he's saying, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who is there left to bring any charge against you, Christian, if you're in Jesus? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on to say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are not conquerors through our own moral effort, our own self-justifications, our own moral record. We are conquerors through Jesus and his grace poured out for us. So Jesus has authority as the author of creation and the author of spiritual recreation. He made us at the very beginning, and in Christ we are made new. And so in one sense, this idea of the Messiah being a conqueror is kind of half true, right? Because Jesus has come to conquer. First, though, he's come to conquer our hearts. He's come to conquer us. And the question this morning isn't, will you be conquered by Jesus? The question is, will you be conquered now and come to Jesus by faith and in repentance? Or will you be conquered by Jesus later on when there is no more time for repentance? But remember what Jesus has done for you. If you're not a Christian, realize that this is an open-handed invitation. Jesus welcomes you with hands wide open, no matter how far you've run from God, no, no matter how twisted your moral life is, no matter how many mistakes you've made, the salvation of Jesus is wide open for any who come. Just don't come with your self-justifications. Don't come with your moral record. Come with your hands wide open, and you will know the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. Point three. Come to the feast. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 8, 10 through 13. And this is actually a parallel passage from the first one. The Apostle Matthew also records this, uh, this event where Jesus encounters this centurion. But Matthew actually adds an additional detail that we're going to look at this morning. So turn again to Matthew 8, 10 through 13. So the, the, the story is still the same, but Matthew adds an additional detail. Starting in verse 10, the centurion says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And my servant, do this, and he does it. And it says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is referring to this future messianic banquet that is going to come with the fulfillment of all things in heaven. It's going to be 
a feast for all who have come to Jesus to enjoy. And the irony is going to be many religious leaders, many people who think they're worthy to come to the feast are not invited. They're not going to be there. Who's going to be there? It's going to be all the wrong people. It's going to be all people who've come empty-handed, realizing they're not worthy, and they're going to get ushered in. It's going to be like an island of misfit toys. It's going to be a feast filled with thieves and adulterers. It's going to be a feast filled with people over time in history for thousands of years who've made such a mess of their life and they finally come to the end of themselves. And they realize they have no self-justifying left. They realize there's nowhere left to turn. There's nothing left to do. And they look to Jesus for their only hope for salvation and redemption and they find it. They're going to be people like Paul, who I'm guessing in this feast isn't first and foremost going to talk about all the churches he started and about the epistles he wrote. More than likely, he's going to be mostly talking about how he was going from town to town persecuting Christians. And while he was pursuing the church to kill, Jesus was pursuing him. And about how there was a light from heaven and the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul in that moment had no response. No self-justifying left. All his years of education and training didn't prepare him for that moment. And he had to give up on himself. There are going to be people like this Ethiopian eunuch in Acts who is driving his chariot down the road and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And it's a prophecy about this Messiah who's coming and he can't make heads or tails of it. And lo and behold, God sends a disciple to jump up in the chariot with the eunuch and explain who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And the eunuch believes, gets out of his chariot, is baptized, and then the disciple disappears. Can you imagine him telling that story at the feast? Yeah, I I didn't know what this prophecy meant. I was just reading it. And then there's this guy and he jumps in the chariot with me and explains it. And then it made sense. This is all about Jesus. So I get out and I'm baptized. And then the guy disappears. That's his story. And there's going to be some guy whose name we don't know who spent his life as a criminal and a thief. And he's going to get to the end of his life. And he literally will come to Jesus open-handed because there is nowhere else to go because he's on the cross next to Jesus. And in that moment, he's not going to have some kind of argument for why he was done wrongly or he was crucified unjustly. The only words he's going to be able to mutter are, Jesus, please remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he's going to be at the feast. So friends, are you going to be there with your story about how you gave up on yourself, about how you gave up on your self-justifying reasons for why you deserve a relationship with God? Will you be there with your story about how you were running to all the wrong things until you ran into a brick wall? Or are you going to come to Jesus in surrender with an open heart and saying, I come to you based on who you are, not on who I am? And 
Will you be someone who invites other people to the feast in the same vein? The people who are seemingly the furthest away, will you be an agent to say, come to the feast, it's free. I know you're messed up. I am too. Jesus died for us. Give up your life. Give up your self-justifying and come to the feast. In the end of the story, the servant is healed because Jesus has a heart that longs to heal and to bring people to God the Father and to reconcile sinners. But you have to come, number one, with your hands wide open, bringing no self-justification with you, only the realization that it's your sin is the only thing you can really bring and God does the rest. Number two, do you realize Jesus is the one with true authority and it's because of his death and resurrection, not because of your own world record, that you have the opportunity to enter God's kingdom. If you don't believe, submit to him this morning, submit to him now and let him conquer your heart even today. His arms are wide open. There is no reason not to come but your own pride and your own self-centeredness. He's the best conqueror you'll ever get. He's the most gracious and loving and wonderful person to be conquered by. And lastly, join the feast. It's a group of ragtag nobodies who have come to the end of themselves, who don't have any plea left except Jesus pursued me, Jesus loved me, Jesus forgave me. Amazing. The irony of the Christian life is that if you come to God with your self-justifying, you'll walk away empty-handed. But if you come to Jesus with hands wide open, you'll get everything because you get Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have not asked us to work our way into your favor. We're so grateful we can't save ourselves because none of us would ever come close. But we're thankful that when we were at our weakest, when we were morally impure, when we didn't have a prayer, Jesus came to die for our sins and to raise us to new life. We are thankful that we get to be a part of the family of God made up of misfits made up of morally unrighteous people who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We are thankful for this amazing gospel. And in this Christmas season, help it to permeate our very hearts and beings and lives. That Jesus came to earth to chase after us. That we're not worthy, but he is forever worthy. So be with us this season, and I pray that the truth of this gospel would resonate deeply in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.